Okay, tonight we're in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, As always, let's remember that we are studying together. And so if you find anything I'm teaching tonight that is an error or that needs a correction, please let me know. Uh, We are learning about things that have everlasting consequences. And so we want to uh, hold each other accountable in these things, that we are studying the truth and that we're applying the truth only to our lives. 1 Samuel 17, we ended last week uh, talking about David being anointed as the new king. Um, Again, Saul's kingdom has been taken away, torn away from him because he rejected the Lord. And so uh, that is going to be given to another. And so Samuel goes and anoints David. At the end of uh, chapter chapter 16, Saul is plagued by an evil spirit, and the only thing that can soothe him is music, and so who's selected to play that music for him? It's David, right? David is is brought in and uh, then works for uh, Saul in this capacity. And so 1 Samuel chapter 17 begins with this challenge from the Philistines. And so verses 1 through 10, you have on one side of the mountain the Philistines and their army, On the other side, you have the Israelites and their army with King Saul, and you have a valley in the middle, right? And so you have these two opposing armies uh, camped out on either mountain. They can see each other, and then they would, uh, you know, again, the battle would take place presumably in that valley, right? And while they're camped out and no battle's currently going on, we have a challenger that comes forth from the Philistines, and what's his name? Goliath. And Goliath has a challenge for Israel. Uh, let's talk about Goliath. What it, I mean, Goliath, he's just a guy, right? Just a guy. No big deal. Big deal. He's a big deal, right? He's nine and a half feet tall, approximately. Uh, he carries this heavy, heavy weighted armor. He has a shield bearer. He's a man who knows about war, has been through war, and is experienced in battle, right? He's experienced in battle. And so it's not just, you know, nobody from the Philistines coming out and challenging him. No, this is a, this is a, a mighty man of war, right? And in verses 8 through 10, he issues his challenge. Um, so Goliath comes out, and he stands, and he shouts at the ranks of Israel, and he says... Why do, you not, uh, why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. And again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Here's my question. Is this a fair challenge? Is it fair? Only if Israel's got a giant. <laughs> right, right. Is it intended to be fair? Do the Philistines care if they have an evenly matched battle between their guy and Israel's guy? No, right? They would actually probably prefer it be the other way around, right? They would rather have all the advantages, as we see here with Goliath, right? Nine and a half feet tall, giant armor, big old spear, big shield, right? They would have all the advantages and then have some puny Israelite come out and then we'll just defeat him, right? It's an intimidation tactic. Okay. 
What do we learn from that? Well, I think one thing that we learn from that is the adversary is not required or incentivized or encouraged to make fair challenges, even to us today, right? When we go out into the world and we encounter worldly people that have challenges against God's word, against the things that we believe in, against things that we stand for, those challenges are often going to be unfair, biased, opinionated, uh, set to trap us in some way. And we have to be on guard for that, right? We have to be on guard for that. Because, and we shouldn't expect that when we get questions, oh, every question that we ever will get about the scriptures is going to be in good faith and is going to be, uh, you know, set up in a way where I have a good shot at being able to convince this person. No, that's not the case, right? It's not always the case, especially if you're dealing with the adversary, right? So don't expect it to be fair. The Philistines were not expecting this challenge to be fair. It is intended to not be fair, right? Because the Philistines want to win. That's their only goal, right? That's their only goal. And so we should just be aware of that as well. Yes, Brother Chris. It's an attack on morale, too. So it's not just discriminated. It's part of the strategy. Yeah, intimidation and fear, right? Spread that throughout the ranks. Right. And we'll have an advantage over this army. Yes, Brother Bruce. Who has halted the entire army of Israel, the same army that when God over and over gave them unfair challenges, mm-hmm. gave them unbeatable opponents, urged them forward with, I will be with you. And it's the same thing that is said to us, and whatever unfair uh, thing life throws at us, and whatever catastrophic. Uh, event or discussion that we have, we need to remember the words, I will be with you. It's true. Uh, yeah, Brother Jason. Just some of the things that Bruce was saying, I think about the devil being described as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, me against a roaring lion is not going to be a very equal fight unless you have an equalizer. And again, to, to Bruce's points, you know, with the Lord on our side, we can conquer that roaring lion. In the same way David, we'll see, obviously, will conquer Goliath with the help of the Lord. If it was just David against Goliath, a man against a man, he's not going to have a chance. And so I think same thing spiritually. Hand it back. And one one other thing, there's this fascination with giants. I mean, there there were four giants of Gath mentioned back in Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and to see this man who's maybe 11, uh, 9 or 11 feet tall, depending on how you mm-hmm. measure that, uh, was something of an awe. Even the, the spies were terrified of these sons of Anak, the, the giants. Giants are just as uh, defeatable. They're just as, uh, they have their weak spots the same as any other, other human. Mm-hmm. But for some reason... Uh, these these humans who were giants in in that land at that time just seemed to bring a halt and fear in, into everybody. 
Yeah, I think it's oftentimes it's the thing you can see, right? You can see that. You can see their size difference. You can see the might that they have. You can see the weight of the armor that they're carrying. You can see all these different things. And the physical, sometimes, when we don't have the right mindset, when we don't have the right priorities, outweighs the things that we should know spiritually already, right? And so uh, we have to be careful with that. Yeah, Brother John. As you were saying, uh, Goliath didn't intend for that to be a fair fight. He thought he had the advantage, but David knew that he had the advantage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, everybody's jumping ahead of me. We already know the story, right? Everyone's jumping ahead of me, but uh, yeah, we're going to get there. We'll We'll see David knows that advantage and points that out to Saul as well, what he knows. All right, any more comments about Goliath and his challenge? Uh, all right, so he, is, he issues this challenge, and Israel and Saul are affected by this, right? This is a fear tactic, and it works. Now, Saul, we can make a claim, has a lot to fear, right? There, there is a lot going on with Saul that we know the Lord has left him. He has been rejected from the Lord. Samuel has left him, and that's what was giving him victory before. He knows that. And so, you know, that might be part of what plays into this with Saul. But then if you have your leader, your king, who's afraid of this challenge, then that's going to have an impact on the people and on the army, right? And so in verse 11, Israel and Saul are both afraid. And then we stop here in the story. We take a pause and we go back and we say, okay, wait, where's David, right? We got to get David in the story somehow. And so we get caught up on David, on where he is, on why he's not with the army in verses 12 through 19. David is the son of Jesse and he's, uh, he's gone back to visit his father to watch the sheep. The three older sons of Jesse are with the army. And so David's father sends David with Uh, some supplies for his sons with also some supplies for the captain of their unit and and sends David on uh, with these things. Now, question one from our questions, what is David's relationship with Saul before Goliath at this time? Think back to chapter 16. He's a musician, musician, said he was his armor bearer. Saul loves him, right? Saul loves him. But as this armor bearer, as this musician, apparently he gets some time off to go watch some sheep. And so he's not with the army at this time. Now you think about a young kingdom, you think about a kingdom in general, a king probably has several people in this position, not just the one David, right? So that would make sense that, you know, they may go visit their family from time to time. Um, but in this case, David is, is bringing these uh, supplies back to his family or back to his brothers at, this, uh, at the battle, And when David gets here, gets to the battle line, he hears the challenge and what, and uh, then the, what the people, the Israelites are saying Saul will do for the one who answers this challenge. And, uh, and that's in verses 20 through 25. And so in verse uh, 25, the men of Israel say, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel and it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. The idea of his father's house free in Israel, free of taxes. Would that incentivize you to go fight a giant? Maybe, right? Your family doesn't have to pay taxes at all. The rest of their lives. 
I mean, I would consider it, right? Uh, free of service, right? You don't have to be indentured into service either. Um, so Saul has a great reward for answering this challenge, right? And, and David is asking about it. And why would David be asking about it? Yeah, David's not asking about it just for his general knowledge, right? He's not asking about it just because, oh, well, I wonder what will happen. Huh. No, he's asking because, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Sure, right? I'll answer the call. I'll answer the challenge. And his, they, the people tell him, right? Verse 26, he says, What's gonna ha- what will be done to the one? Because for, this, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people tell him what will be done. And then in verse 28, his brother says, come here. Wait a minute, right? Who do you think you are? Right? Who do you think you are? Now, what was said about this brother in 1 Samuel chapter 16? He's the first one to come through the door and Samuel sees, right? The first one Samuel sees and he says, well, this is going to be the king. But what does the Lord tell him? God sees the heart. Does he have the heart that God's looking for? No. Eliab does not have the heart that God is looking for in his new king. That's his brother David. And he's the one who's anointed. Now, is maybe Eliab trying to, you know, is he jealous? Like the brothers of Joseph, is he, you know, we don't know, right? What we do know is that he is talking to his younger brother, the youngest of the brothers, who they consider a child. He's a youth, right? He's not experienced and he thinks he can just go into this battle situation and take on this giant. And, and he may be concerned about his brother and about his brother's motivations, right? Jonathan. And you have Saul, What about Saul? The people had said back in chapter 8, we want a king, like all the other nations, this champion who will go out before us and fight our battles. And they got all the raw deal parts of having a king, like we're talking about taxes now and all of these things, and they didn't even get what they were looking for, the king who would go out and fight their battles. And what they had traded was the God of heaven who would be with them in their battles and who would fight their battles for them. You have to see the irony in what they've chosen here. They chose this. Yeah, and, and the, the silly thing is that they, they said, okay, we want a king like all the other nations who's going to fight our battles. And what they were asking for, they got, which was a king like all the other nations who also did not fight their own battles, <laughs> right? They took all your sons and all your kids and sent them out to fight their battles. Yeah. And to add to that, who was Israel's tallest guy? Yeah, right. Saul's head and shoulders. And he's hiding yeah. in a tent right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But David's not going to hide, right? David is not going to allow his brother to keep him from asking these questions because he wants to answer the challenge, right? He's not going to keep him from asking this honest question. And David says to his brother, verse 29, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? It's a question. I'm just asking what will be done, right? I'm not trying to usurp anyone's authority or anything like that. Just asking a question about what's going to be done. And the people are already talking about the answer. We don't need to be afraid of people asking genuine, honest questions of us and all of a sudden clam up and then not be able to answer because, well, I don't, they asked me a question. 
what do I do? Right? Um, I, I've been told of, of a high school class that had a teacher that was asked in the class. They were studying Noah and the flood. And they were asked in the class, uh, you know, could this be an explanation for what the world talks about, Pangea and the continents breaking apart and, you know, maybe the flood, the weight of that water on the world causing that to happen. And the answer they received was, that's evolution, we don't talk about that. Which is not a good answer, right? It's not a good answer. Um, you know, okay, maybe the teacher was caught off guard. Maybe they didn't expect that question. Sure. But the proper answer would be, I don't know. Let me look into that and I'll get back to you, right? Let me do some study and I'll, I'll answer what I, from what I find in the scriptures. We don't need to be afraid of people asking us questions because that's the examples that we have all throughout the scriptures is that we need to be the people that, that people from the world come to to ask those questions, right? The ones who have those answers, the ones who can provide those answers and increase in their knowledge of the scriptures from what we see in God's word. So we don't need to be afraid of those questions, even if we don't know the answer, right? You can tell someone, well, I don't know. I'll get back to you, right? You can give, give yourself time to find the answer, even if you're caught off guard. But David here isn't just asking a question. He is asking a question because he's going to answer this challenge, right? And so Saul uh, is told these words that David's been asking in verse 31. And And so David's going to answer this challenge. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And so Saul tells David, no, you can't do it. You're too young. You can't do it. You're too young. And David says, no, I can do it, right? I did it with the lion. I did it with the bear. The Lord has saved me all these times, all these times, and So what David does here is he convinces Saul that he is able to go and defeat Goliath by providing him evidence from his own life and his own circumstances where the Lord gave him deliverance, right? The Lord gave him salvation. The Lord gave him the victory. And isn't that similar to what we're supposed to do, right? With people in the world, right? Give them evidence from our lives of all these different things, right? And so we need to see that example here. David is told by Saul, no, you can't do it. David says, no, I can do it because of X, Y, and Z. And so, okay, yeah, no, he can do it, right? And so Saul says, all right, I'm going to give you every advantage that you can have. I'm going to give you my sword. I'm going to give you my armor. And so David puts all those things on, and how does he feel about it? It's uncomfortable. It's heavy. I'm weighted down, right? I can't, I'm not myself, Right? I'm putting on all of your stuff. It's not, it's not my stuff. Right? I'm, not, I'm not tested in it. I'm not tried in it. I have, don't have experience with all these things. And so, does he go anyway? Mm, I mean, he goes anyway, but he doesn't take all of Saul's gear with him. Right? He doesn't take all of Saul's, okay, thank you, king, for bringing me all this stuff. I'll go fight a battle now. Right? No, he, he takes it off, just takes the things that he's comfortable with, and that's what he uses to fight Goliath, right? So, you know, you can learn a lot of things from people, right? People give you advice. 
Uh, Advice can be very helpful for us. It can help broaden our perspective. It can help us see things in a different way. It can help us understand things in a different way, maybe a way we haven't thought about before because we're all unique individuals who bring our own experiences and perceptions and things to, to how we view a problem. And that can be very beneficial. It also means that not the... Not everyone's solution is going to be your solution, right? Not everyone's solution to whatever your experience is or, or how you're handling things or whatever is going to fit the way that you would handle it. Yes, Brother John. It also showed the difference in the heart of Saul and the heart of David. Mm-hmm. Saul was still putting confidence in self and what he could do for himself, and David was putting his confidence in the Lord. Yeah, his self and his things, right? The things that he's accumulated, the people he's accumulated, and yeah, David's full confidence is in the Lord. And so David, you know, gives, you know, takes off the, the armaments that Saul's given him, and he just goes with his, his staff and his sling, and he goes to a brook, and he picks up five smooth stones, and he's ready to go fight Goliath. Now, here's a question. If he had faith in God, why'd he pick five? Five smooth stones. Why not just the one? How many did it take to, to kill Goliath? It took one and a sword, technically, right? One and a sword. But why did he pick five? Well, did he know what the Lord was going to do with the one? No. Could the Lord have done it in one? Sure. Could the Lord have done it in five? Sure. Yeah. Right? The Lord's not restrained to save by many or by few. And that even applies to how many stones David picked up and put in his pouch, right? By many or by few, the Lord could still save. And so it's not a lack of faith on his part. But it's just preparation, right? Sometimes we get those two things confused. Well, no, you over-prepared, so that means you don't have faith. Well, not necessarily, right? It's it's smart to prepare. It's smart to bring the things that you need uh, and be prepared. And just being prepared doesn't eliminate your faith in the Lord, right? Okay. I'm moving quickly because i got to get through a whole other chapter. All right. So David's going to the battle. Goliath starts insulting him. He says, you know, oh, you just sent out this dog to fight me. And, you know, that's what happens when the world world sees what we bring to the fight, right? When the world sees the armaments that we have and what we're equipped with, the Lord doesn't view it as powerful or mighty. The, The world views it as weak and flawed. But it's not, right? And so Goliath gives uh, all of these uh, insults in verse 41 through 44. He despises the youth of David. And David just gives it right back to him, right? Responds that the Lord's going to give him victory anyway. Now, here's my, here's my question. Does the Lord's victory or, you know, determination of whether the Lord will be victorious or not depend upon the belief of Goliath? No, right? The Lord giving the victory does not care in any way, shape, or form whether Goliath believes in it or not, right? It's, it just is going to happen. And we need to remember that when we go out into the world, right? We are armed with the truth. If the world says, well, yeah, but I don't believe that. Okay, well, that's on them. It doesn't change the truth, right? It doesn't change the truth or the fact that we shared the truth. That just impacts them and their decisions. Uh, so belief does not invalidate you know, in any way, the victory that the Lord is going to give uh, in this case. And so David runs to the Philistine to meet him in the battle. One stone, one smooth stone, hits him in the forehead. Goliath falls. 
David doesn't have a sword, so he uses Goliath's sword. Take his sword out, cut off his head, he's dead. And then what happens? Yeah, the Philistines are like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, right? This little shepherd guy killed our big warrior who was, you know, he was supposed to be our win, right? Supposed to be our win, didn't work. So if this shepherd guy can kill him, we're in trouble. (laughs) And so they flee and and the Israelites chase them. And so that makes sense why in verse uh, 54, David then brings the head back to Saul in Jerusalem, right? David is there and he kills Goliath. And then after he kills Goliath, the giant battle breaks out, right? The Israelite army runs and chases the Philistines. There's a big battle. It's not the right time for David to then go and find the king in the middle of a giant battle, you know, and then say, oh, here's Goliath's head. Where's my reward? No, right? He, He meets him in Jerusalem. And he brings the head of Goliath. Why, why would you do that? Yeah, evidence. It's also a message to the Philistines, right? It's evidence and it's a message to the Philistines. How do I know, Saul would say, that you defeated Goliath? Well, I have his head here. It's not looking pretty, but I got it. I brought it with me, right? Here it is. Uh, and that's proof that he, he fulfilled his end of the agreement, right? He answered the challenge and he defeated Goliath. And so... Uh, Saul is then asking around whose son he is, and he finds out that he's the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And then we get to chapter 18. So before we move into chapter 18, any comments? Jonathan. Mm-hmm. not a Philistine and you not servants of Saul. What happened between the time where all the people of the land knew that God had given them the land and it was just a matter of time and they're in terror and dread? What happened between that time and now where, oh, these are not the servants of God. This is not the nation of the almighty God. He's taunting them and that's actually why David's so um, incensed about this. Are we really letting this, you know, heathen man taunt the armies of the living God? That, I think that's what really uh, egged him on to say something has to be done about this and whether or not he had in mind himself doing it or not. I don't know. But um, what really happened between that time and now? Well, they had turned their backs on God. It was the period of the judges. It's like they weren't the people of God. They weren't serving him right. And then they chose this man. The irony there again, I guess we've already said that though. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, the period of the judges where they're fragmented, disjointed, and at the end they're having a civil war trying to destroy each other. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And that, you know, it's sad to see the fall, right? Sad to see the fall to this point um, where, where that is what is occurring. Um, when Saul could have chosen a different way, right? Saul could have chosen a different way. He could have established again a nation that followed after the Lord and brought victory and deliverance and salvation because of the hand of the Lord, which is what he did at the beginning with Nahash, but how far he's fallen in rejecting the Lord, rejecting God, and rejecting his commands. Okay, so chapter 18. Uh, question two in our question. What are Jonathan and David's relationship? <laughs> yeah, 
they love one another, right? They love one another. Their souls are knitted together in, uh, you know, verse eight, chapter 18, verse 1, right? Very first verse came about when he had finished speaking to Saul. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Uh, verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Okay, here's a difficult question, right? We talked about difficult questions that we need answers to. Here's a difficult question. People in the world will say, okay, here you go, homosexual relationship. They loved each other. We know what that means. How do we know that that is not the case? Correct, yeah. So Leviticus 18, verse 22, uh, 20, verse 13, when you're talking about passages relating in God's word at that time, you also have 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 10, Romans 1, 26 and 27. Now, if you look online, you'll have comments that'll say, well, that's, you know, they just didn't understand gender at that time the way that we do today. I'd never seen that before until I did some research. Uh, Brother Sam up here. But, uh, but before that comment, we, that doesn't make sense, right? Because who gave us this book and this law? God. Who created man? God. Who created the genders? Okay, so what they're saying is that the one who created genders does not understand fully genders, like what he created. That doesn't make any sense. Okay. I think the answer's here, and it just hit me, actually. I didn't think about it before, but what was offered to the man that was going to defeat Goliath? Mm Mm-hmm. Not Saul's son, his daughter. Drop the mic. I mean, that's the answer. It's true. It's true. But you would say, well, oh, okay. So the argument would be, well, but the culturally that wouldn't be acceptable. And so it had to be the daughter, even if the man was a homosexual and had this relationship with his other son. But that's just the world applying its own definition to the word love here that doesn't fit. It doesn't apply. It doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. Um, and that happens all the time, right? We, we don't have to go very far back to see that Saul was doing the exact same thing. What does utterly destroy the Amalekites mean? Well, we utterly destroyed the Amalekites. We just brought back the sheep and the oxen, and we brought back the king, but we utterly destroyed all of the Amalekites, except for this stuff, which I decided to keep, but everything else we utterly destroyed, and so we fulfilled the command, right? Uh, you, you can't do that, right? It, <laughs> Changing your version of the definition doesn't change the actual definition and the term that's being used and what's being discussed, right? And so we don't need to let that trip us up. Um, You know, that kind of argument can be difficult with the person that you're talking to at the time. But it really is quite simple, right? The answer is quite simple. And the answer is that the Lord has condemned homosexuality And so, therefore, it is condemned, right? The Lord is not a man that you can convince him to change his mind, right? That's what Samuel told Saul. You can't convince the Lord and talk your way around it to where all of a sudden it's okay. But man does that all the time, right? Man does that all the time. And so that's why the comparison between the Lord and man doesn't work, right? The Lord is not a man because you can do that with men. You can't do that with the Lord. And so this relationship between Jonathan and David is love. 
Love doesn't necessarily mean romantic love. What is the greatest example of love that we have? The greatest example of love we have is God sending his son to die on a cross for us. There is no romantic version of love in that, but that is the greatest example of love that we have, right? In a marriage relationship, you have a lot of different types of love going on there. You have the sacrificial love, you have that caring love, you have romantic love, you have all of these things occurring all at the same time, and none of those things invalidate the other, right? You can have that, because we're complex people, and we can have complex emotions, and those emotions can involve a lot of different things, and it works, right? But just because it says the word love, it does not mean that it's romantic in any way, right? Uh, you, when you talk about Leviticus 18, where it condemns homosexuality and that relationship, right after that, it talks about man having a relationship with beasts and animals, okay? Uh, you would probably find it challenging to uh, get the person that wants you to believe that homosexuality is okay to also agree that, well, you could also have a relationship with your dog. That's fine, too, right? Now, pro- that might be a very hard sell. But that's, that's in the same chat. That's it talked right after each other about, right? And so if you, you can't have one without agreeing to the other if you're saying that they're invalid. Okay, so this relationship with Jonathan and David, their souls are knit together. They love each other. They also are likely about the age difference of a father and a son at this point, right? David is a youth. Jonathan has been prince for a while now, right? He's been uh, fighting these battles, and he's the, the son of the king. And, um, and so that you have that large age difference there as well. But it makes sense when you read the passage that Jonathan and David's souls would be knit together because think about the character of Jonathan and what we've already discussed. Who was the individual that went and attacked a Philistine garrison with his armor bearer and that's it? Jonathan, right? Jonathan's the one who did that. And why did he do it? Yeah, Lord gives the victory, right? We serve the almighty God. If he wants to give us this garrison of the Philistines, just me and my armor bearer, it's going to happen. And so we'll, we'll go do it, right? Very similar uh, attitude in David here, right? David has a, there's a challenge from Goliath. Okay, well, this is an uncircumcised heathen. Let's, let's answer the call, right? The Lord will give us the victory. We just got to go do it. And so, yeah, you have, you have two very similarly motivated individuals who are connected in their faith and their trust in the Lord, And that binds us all together, right? That binds us who are children of the Lord together in this common ground, in this common goal, in this common pursuit, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's just when the world enters in, they pervert all that. And they do it for their own ambitions. They do it for their own goals. They do it because they want to justify the things that they want to do. And again, as we've stated here, as we've stated in classes before, all of that justification does is allows you to sin with a guilt-free conscience. But it doesn't change the truth, and it doesn't change the commands that you're breaking to do it. Yes? Uh, Real quick... um the devil did that when he was tempting Jesus too. He misused all kinds of verses, tried to twist them to his own purpose. And so Mm -hmm. it shouldn't surprise us if the world does that too. Right. It's true. 
Yeah, the, it happens all the time. Either we do it ourselves or Satan does it or Satan presents us with an opportunity for it to happen. Uh, you know, once we abandon the word of the Lord, there is no end to how far we can go. Right? Because again, you've left the standard and you're just out in the open, right? You can go as far as you want. Okay. So, verse 5. Uh, David does well wherever Saul sends him, right? Jonathan gives him his, his armor, his robe, his sword, his bow, his belt. That's a sign of you know, uh, bestowing gifts on a faithful servant, right? Giving honor to one who has accomplished a great feat for the kingdom. The prince is giving him his stuff, right? Remember, okay, a, a different uh, story, a similar idea, right? In Esther, right, Haman's asked, oh, what, what would you do for someone who helps the king, right? And, and Haman says, oh, well, I'd give him all, put his robe on him, have him go on his horse down through the city, right? Okay, Similar event here, right? Only this time, there's no ulterior motive of Haman being involved, right? But that's, that's what's happening here. He's being bestowed honor. And David is then, okay, Saul, what does Saul do? He gathers men that are valiant and are good at what they do, and he puts them in his, in his court. He puts them to work for himself, right? So David proved himself, and so Saul sends him out. And he does well, and it's pleasing in the sight of all the people, in the sight of Saul's servants. And then verse 6 and 7, we have a problem, right? 6 through 9, we have a problem. They're coming back. David's returned from killing the Philistine. The women come out of the cities, and they're singing and dancing to meet King Saul. And they sing what? Yeah, Saul's killed his thousands. David, his tens, tens of thousands, right? Uh-oh. What are they saying? David's ten times better than Saul. No, not exactly. But yeah, right? That's kind of what they're saying. That's how Saul hears it, right? And what happens when Saul hears this in verse 8? He's angry. What motivates the change in this relationship? Our question number three. Jealousy. In verse 9, it says suspicion. Later on, it talks about fear. Um, Saul, from this point on, is plagued with this fear, right? The Lord has rejected him. The kingdom's no longer yours. It's been taken away from you and given to another who is better than you. Saul is terrified. He has a pity party, but he's afraid, right? He's afraid legitimately because he knows this is going to happen. He knows it's going to happen and he's going to fight it for as long as he can, but he knows it's going to happen. So he's constantly looking for where is it going to come from? Is it going to come from David? I don't know. It might. It's already happening. They're talking about him saying he's better than me. Fear is a scary thing because of what all else fear does, right? Fear doesn't just cause fear. Fear causes suspicion. Fear causes uh, anxiety. Fear causes stress. Fear causes outbursts of anger. Yeah, accidents. Like, all kinds of things, right? Fear is just a, it's a perpetual thing that, if left unchecked, can, can just ruin you, right? And that's what happens here with Saul. 
He's angry. I, uh, I bring that up because, you know, 1 John chapter 4, 1 John 4 verse 18, remember our previous question, Saul loved David at that point in time. Now he's afraid. 1 John, uh, 1, or 1 John 4 verse 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Saul doesn't love Jonathan or doesn't love David anymore. Not a big fan of David's anymore. Is David successful? Yeah, he's successful. Saul is not a fan of him though, because he doesn't trust it. He doesn't trust what that success means. He doesn't trust what that success means to him and about him and about his kingdom. And so in verses 10 and 12, we have the first two attempts to kill David from Saul. Saul is plagued by this uh, evil spirit. And he's railing against his staff. And so David comes and does what he normally does. He plays the harp for the king. And Saul just happens to find a spear in his hand and says, I'll do what I've always done. I'll take care of it myself. I have a spear. What am I good for? I'm good for pinning people to the wall with my spear, right? So he tries to do that to David twice. And David escapes both times. Saul sees that, okay, that didn't work, right? Uh, That didn't work. And he's prospering in all that he's doing. And so uh, Saul decides, okay, uh, Israel and Judah love him. I can't really just pin him to the wall like I'd like to and claim it was an accident. Um, And so what will I do instead? Well, okay, I'll set a trap, right? And so I'll offer him my daughter as I promised him before when he killed Goliath. I'll, I'll Give him my daughter, and he'll be my son-in-law. And so in verse 17, he says, Here's my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. What does David say? That's not my place. I'm I'm not prominent. I'm I'm low. I don't don't have the status that you would need to be the the king's son-in-law. And so... He says, you know, who am I? What is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it didn't work out. Well, okay, then what does Saul do? He gives her to another man. Verse 20, Michael, Saul's daughter, loves David. So here's another opportunity. Okay. My daughter loves David. So, all right, well, let's use this to our advantage, right? So Saul tries another plot. Uh, I will, uh, I'll give her to him. And she'll become a snare to him, and the hand of the Philistines will be against him. So he says, okay, you'll be my son-in-law. And David says, I don't have a dowry that will work. And he says, okay, I have a solution. I want a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, and she's yours. That's all I want, vengeance against my enemies. We know about Saul and his vengeance. He likes it, even if his people are starving, right? Okay, you get vengeance against the Philistines, get a hundred foreskins, and, and she'll be yours. And so David says, okay. Yeah, we can do that. And so Saul's idea is what with this plan? Yeah, you go get a, fight 100 Philistines. That's 100 chances for you to fail or some accident to happen or you to lose in some way. And then you're dead, right? And I'm done with you. Philistines killed you. It's not my fault. The people don't have to be mad at me. They can be mad at the Philistines. We don't like them anyway. And it all works out, right? But what does David bring him? 200, right? You ask for 100, I go above and beyond. Here you go, 200, right? And so Michael becomes his wife. And 
Saul is not happy with this, right? Verse 28, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually, right? Continually. He can't let it go now. All of his plans haven't worked out. He's afraid because this might be the guy, right? This might be the one to take it all from me. But it's not David who's going to take it all from him. It's Saul who's rejected the Lord, and therefore the Lord took it away already, right? Uh, Verse 30, the commanders of the Philistines come out to battle, and it happens that David behaves himself more wisely than all of Saul's servants. David is increasing in this wisdom, in this prestige, in this victory, and that's all because of his faith in the Lord and the victory that the Lord is giving him. Thank you very much for your comments this evening.